You're listening to the Precision Shooting Podcast, discussing all aspects of precision and long-range rifle shooting. This episode is brought to you by Projectile Warehouse. Find your perfect projectile. And now, over to your hosts. Well, hello and welcome to the Precision Shooting Podcast. This is episode number 66. My name's Rusty, and it's actually the continuation of the previous episode where we were talking about our reloading process. The voices you'll hear, aside from myself, is Greg, uh, who is a regular, uh, Bronte, who is, I guess, becoming a bit of a regular as well, and also Paul, uh, who's one of our sponsors, uh, Scoped Out, and this was his first time uh, podcasting with us as well. So the, the we were talking about the reloading process that we all use, so we're going to pick it up uh, about here, and the... Uh, boys are talking about their various ways as we step through the process and what they do in what order and such. So hopefully you guys get something out of it and uh, will let us know uh, your processes and you know perhaps present some ideas to you guys and from your communication to us, uh, we might look at changing some stuff and uh, yeah, always open to a uh, a journey of development with uh, reloading. It's certainly never learn it all in one go. Or actually, to be honest, you never learn it all uh, completely. So anyway, without further ado, we'll throw open back to the uh, discussions. So once we've trimmed and deburred, um, what's next in the process, Bronte, for you? Um, it sort of it's one of those one of the I do a neck turn as well, but that's kind of is a one off. Yeah. Thing. So, so so where in that process would you neck turn if you were neck turning? So what I'd probably after I've sized. Yep. Um, the reason being that I'm. Generally, I'm trying to get rid of any donuts or anything like that that have formed. So they get pushed out when you resize the case. Mm-hmm. So my step would be I then have to run it through an expander mandrel, which increases, blows the case back out, that neck of that case out ever so slightly again. Yep. So it fits it's uniform over Uniform on the inside. Correct. Yeah. So it's uniform on the inside. Um, yep. I then, I've got an attachment for a cordless drill, so I spin the case with a cordless drill. And a jacket as well. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then use the, I've got a, I think it's a K&M. Yes. Yep. Um, K&M neck turning. Yes. Yeah, tool. Mm. Um, and I find that to be really quite easy to use. I mean, neck turning is a bit of a pain, but with that set up, I found it to be pretty pretty good. Um, one thing I do, though, is I lube the living daylights out of it with um, imperial sizing wax. Yes. Because if you don't, it gets really hot really quickly. Um, mm. And the issue with that is it... As the as the mandrel heats up because of the friction, mm-hmm. the diameter increases. So then you actually start to get introducing new inconsistency. Yeah. Okay. Um, I also use carbide mandrels as opposed to tool steel mandrels for that same reason because they're more thermally stable. Right. Yep. I found also um, Lapour. I didn't really need to touch. They're very consistent. You know, unless you've got a chamber that needs it. So it actually fits. Uh, but I found, you know, your standard sort of Remy and Winchester and horrible, horrible. Yeah, yeah, well, well worth, well worth the effort. I yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, for me, I found, yeah, Lapour Norma, yeah. I would probably, you know, I, I normally set my neck turning up because for me, I'm not neck turning to fit it into a chamber. I'm neck turning for consistency for when I use bushing dies later on. Or to get rid of donuts in the case of my 6.5 Super LR, where I'm using sort of uh, European brass, which has a thicker shoulder material, rather than the American brass, which is thinner shoulder material. So the European brass forms donuts in it. Um, I found that, yeah, with normal brass, there wasn't a huge amount of 
um, the material will get removed consistently. Yep. Whereas neck sizing, uh, neck turning federal brass, for example, I get a, quite a few cases where quite literally only fifty percent of the neck has actually had material removed, but had a and lot. the other half had a heap of material removed. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Same. Same experience with me. Yeah. Hmm. So worth doing. Big difference to SD too. For me. I didn't actually notice much of an SD difference in my 300 Win Mag or 243, mm. but I did notice it in my Super LR. And the reason I attribute that to is my 243 and 300 Win Mag, I'm using a conventional style um, die with a, a ball expander, yep. man, like the mandrel, you know? Yeah, yeah. Whereas my um, Super LR, I'm using a bushing die. So I think it's because the bushing die indexes on the outside of the case, whereas your ball expander will index off the inside of the case. Yeah, okay. Your um, inconsistencies with a with a ball expander are pushed to the outside, whereas your inconsistencies with the bushing die are pushed to the inside. Yeah, interesting thought. Yep. Mm. All right, so neck sizing actually happens, you're saying, before trimming? Do you get that right? Full length sizing. Sorry, not neck sizing. Neck um, turning. Yeah, so w- because you've had to expand it to get it to fit over the mandrel, then you have to size it again. Then, yeah. Then you size it again. Okay. But cool. that's essentially, it's, it's a, a one-off. one-off. Yeah. Well, it's it's a one-off procedure, generally speaking, but you, after, say, five or six firings, you, you might start to notice there's a donut or something like that, and you might decide to tidy up the necks. I know some people that will tidy up the necks after their first firing, so they'll neck turn fire the case once and then neck turn again to, to pick up any crud that may have been missed by the first pass. Okay. All right. I was actually going to ask that because I mean, I'm looking at neck sizing now and I was going to say, do you fire first, like fire your virgin brass first and then basically mandrel the inside and then you're going to get more consistency, aren't you? Um, for me, I had to neck turn first because I was using normal brass with a Super LR because I material that was once the shoulder now become the neck, I was getting a, a substantial donut, oh. which is donuts basically a thickening of that brass right around the, the shoulder neck junction. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not necessarily consistent. So it's generally associated with horrendous accuracy, really inconsistent pressure spikes and all sorts of other things that we're trying to avoid basically. Yeah, I think also you can do it before a first firing. If if you've got a brand new rifle that's just had a new chamber cut and you've got those chamber details, you can trim it to those details yep. um, without having fired because you've got the detail. This is where we need uh, Andrew because yep. he can tell me what that tool <laughs> is called that cuts the chamber. The reamer. But, the reamer. Yeah, you can get those details from your gunsmith. The Thanks, Andrew. And it, it may have a particular width um, for the neck and then you can trim so you can pick your actual separation uh, around the neck, basically. And that's so. a lot of the... It's probably more of an F-class thing um, in bench rest to have to to get to that level of detail for hey, most no, people. No need to be racist well, again. Mo- <laughs> yeah, a lot, of, a lot of the rebarreling, sometimes, sometimes, like not in my cases, but you will have to do it for it to chamber. For a, yeah, if, yeah. You, if you have a really tight chamber. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, generally speaking, the PRS guys use a slightly looser chamber or a no-neck turn chamber just because they can't be Yeah, but Greg, yeah, right. Greg likes a tight chamber. Well, everyone likes a tight chamber. There's no- Cheers to that. <laughs> So with the projectile, with the seating of the projectile, do you then go that's, to... So that's a, jumping forward. 
Yeah, no, I'm just going to get into the, right, the right. sort of next sizing. <laughs> do you go two thousand or is, is it one thousand? I mean, how do you sort of work it? I, I go two thousand. Two thousand, okay. But that's neck tension, and uh, we'll probably push that till later. Or do you want to, that's seating? I was going to say uh, we we do need to cover it's, powder at least. Yeah, you know, that I mean, generally work neck tension sort of comes in neck turning. I mean, because that yeah that, that is sort all encompassing. I mean, that that's what the end result of the yeah, neck turning sort of gives you. Of course, it's yeah. just interesting. I mean, Bronte, what do you do? Is it one thousand, two thousand? Answer it now. Okay. For me, um, I I take a loaded round and I measure a loaded round and then go two thousand less than that for selecting my bushing. So two thousand, yeah. I'm exactly the same. Yeah. All right. And the FKLX guys go one thousand. I'm guessing. I don't know what they do to be honest, and that's probably a good good one. Look for at it. Well, I don't know. Jason, yeah, I don't know whether it does, but often yeah. you'll find that 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 brass will spring back the, that one thousand. So guys go two thousand to bring it down enough yeah. to spring back one to sort of split the difference mm. from my experience. But, yeah, Jace would be, you know, again, a good question to throw his way. Or, or we actually, um, shortly we're going to speak to another one of the guys from uh, from the F-Class, the Australian F-Class team. So those sort of questions would be wonderful to throw to him. Uh, hopefully that all comes to pass uh, and uh, we can certainly throw a few questions like that to him. So the next process, where we have this, so we've neck turned if we've had to, and we've trimmed, and let's say we assume we've chamfered a bird. Um, what comes next, gentlemen? Um, Greg, looking at you. Uh, promise. Promise. Yep. Right. Any, has anyone got anything different to primers at this point? No? no. Everyone's shaking heads? Yeah. All right, cool. So all all I'll say there is we've that... We've spent time on the brass. We've done all that bits and pieces. Yeah. Now we're priming. All I'll say there is I prefer the hand primer over using the press because you just got more feel when the the primer is seated. So you can f- easily feel those loose primer pockets versus, you know, a decent um, pressure. Mm. Yeah, I totally agree with you there, Greg. Um, it's one thing I've, for myself, when I feel a really loose primer pocket, I'll flip the case over and I'll colour it with texture or something like that. And that essentially goes in the box for spotlighting because oh. it gets flung off the back of the ute and whatever. Yeah, okay. Yeah, a lot of cool. guys will just throw those loose ones straight in the bin or, you know, just piff them over the shoulder. But that's even a better idea. I like that. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> some of us are working to a little bit limited budgets <laughs> yeah, here, Greg. Yeah, I know, you yeah, can't I'm be all as lucky as you. Just it on Visa, mate. All good. <laughs> good. Yeah, the problem is you own Visa, though. Um, Paul, yourself, this is the primer stage for you or is there something else you throw in the mix? No, I use the um, hand primer as well. And mm-hmm. uh, much the same. I mean, if I've got something that doesn't sort of sit well and you, you can feel it, uh, that case will then be sort of moved on for you know um, setting your resizing or something you know or maybe yep. annealing or you know if you're dealing with a blowtorch it could be a case it's it's almost like a throwaway case type thing that you sure. can use for setup so yeah cool I, I at this point if uh, depending which I'm doing again if it's on the Dylan well it just moves on to the next process and we throw the primer in uh, this is the point where I generally will tidy up the primer pocket if I need to um, my method of cleaning that I have myself is the um is the corn cob stuff so I don't get the chance to it doesn't clean the primer pocket out itself so I will spend this time I got the Lyman system um which has the ability to clean out the primer pockets so I use this this base uh, to clean the primer pockets out and then I do the same thing as you guys I generally will seat with the hand primer uh with the exception of my 338 where I don't have the appropriate setup uh, to do that, so I have to do that in the press. Um, but I think we're all in the same boat with that. We've now got primers in the cases, and I sort of generally regard these cases as ready rock and roll. Um, is there anything? I know we talked about uh, Jace last 
episode or last studio studio episode, reloading room episode really, uh, is only seeing the bullets just prior to shooting. You guys haven't experienced any of what he's talking about with uh, primers at all? You, you just see the primers and then whenever you get around to loading it, you get loading it? Well, that's what I do. Good. Right. That's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I'm not shooting super extreme long range and I'm not shooting target. I'm shooting foxes. So yeah. um, I guess what matters when it matters. So, um, Well, I, I just haven't seen any you know, instance where the, the primer would bond to the case and that be detrimental at all. Yeah. Oh, yeah I don't know. It'd be a great thing to test though, wouldn't it? It'd be a great thing to just uh, have similar batches but have some that you've you've seeded, say, a couple of weeks. before. Well, well, that'd be a nice extreme why test. Not? I'll probably why some not? Stuff sitting why there. not? Yeah. But you know, use same batch of powder, same everything sure. else, um, and and just see how the SDs come up and see if there's any. Yeah. You know, yeah. Get right on that, Greg. Good. Yeah, I will. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> From one a day. one day, if you look at it, the the um, whether the primer body bites into the case body more or less shouldn't matter because you we yep. wouldn't be expecting to have gas. Sleeping past, you don't so, not no, because mm. if you've probably got other issues at that point. But <laughs> <laughs> one thing that I have started doing is I actually vacuum seal my primers. So when I so basically I'll have um, you know a thousand primers or whatever it is, and then I'll put them in a vacuum seal bag and to keep right. the air out of them. Whereas obviously when they're in a low, uh, case, it's a bit hard to do that. So can you well, can you take us through the idea behind that? I've actually thought about that. Right. Okay. Yeah. Cuz I'm thinking, you know, these are uh, uh pyrotechnic exposed to air. Correct. So you know, and are, I, you know, yeah. Yeah, that's basically they're a touch explosive, yeah. a lead-based touch explosive. Do they degrade. So yeah. more, I'm don't necessarily concern myself too much with exposure to oxygen and such because if the compound was break down in oxygen then it would probably end pretty badly for them trying to manufacture it. Um, but my yep. concern more so is uh, moisture ingress into the primer. Okay. And over time, that, that moisture causing corrosion and as well as actually degrading the, the um, compound itself, the priming mm. material. But in saying that, I'm probably getting a little bit pedantic in the respect that the manufacturer doesn't bother to, to do anything about it when it's shipped from wherever in the world it's made. Yeah, okay. So over the sea and the likes of that. So it's probably a little bit over the top, but, but I guess it when doesn't it, take long to vacuum seal. Mm. But, you, you know, you're achieving low single digits in your SD. So, you know, maybe there is a level of credibility, but, you know, that's not yeah, the, I'd, e I'd not the easiest SD to reach is low no, single digits. It's not I'd, easy. I'd have to admit that's something I've never considered at all. Um, I don't know if I can... can Consider it after tonight either, but it's certainly <laughs> something I've never considered prior. Um, interesting, yeah, Paul. How uh, how many vacuum bags do you go through in a week? I go through none. I think there's too much user error in my shooting, so <laughs> I don't think the, the only honest ceiling, person in the room <laughs> vacuum sealing will not help me. Um, okay. I load the morning I shoot only because of time constraints. <laughs> Um, I'm Not usually ge generally late at the range because of that reason. I yep. think everyone can contest to that. And then I'm Agreed. on the 100 meter range trying to sight my scope in. And yep. yeah, so. Oh, can we go around to 1,000 meters? <laughs> oh, it's closed, mate. We're done for the day. <laughs> All right. Well, it's not the first time I've heard that. No, so. no. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. And so, be, um, anything unusual you do with priming at all? Or no, I. Put them in backwards or something? No, <laughs> no I'll not do intentionally. It, you know, I might do it sitting down rather than standing up. I mean, no, it's. it's yeah. 
Seriously, I mean, again, it's just oh, hold it's on, user phone, error. Hang on, <laughs> I think this is just breaking news. We are revolutionising the world of reloading. You, you can well, do it sitting down. Hey, you can do it. I can actually do it leaning against the bench. I mean, it's wow, multi-talented. Oh. Hope you guys are taking so, notes out there. So I've got the hand primer going, and then I tend to I'm priming my brass as I'm waiting for the you know the um, the RCBS to sort of start throwing the powder. So it's it's to me it's it's. It's a time thing. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm usually doing everything in one go. It's, yep. I tend to get my brass prepped prior to my reloading, so I've got like batches of it, but the whole reloading process from the powder situation and primers, it tends to be, you know, primer, powder, seeding, the morning mm-hmm. of the shoot. That tends to be sure. how I roll. So Easy. Yeah. So that's quite an interesting one there because it's probably one point of difference for myself. I tend to do everything in batches. I'll prime all my cases then I'll weigh all my powder charges and then I'll set all my projectiles I won't mm. do like I won't load a round to completion from a, a prepped case I'll do all those steps independently of each other you've clearly got too much time then. Oh. no, <laughs> no mean, hang on I, I actually I'll clarify that yeah. you're better organised with your time I have three loading trays that I have um, so I'll have one loading tray that's got prep brass obviously with primers That'll be beside the the rock chuck, or the um, sorry, the RCBS. Um, I'll also have a tray of um, brass that is turned a certain way that I know is not primed, and then I'll prime them, turn them upside down, and then the other ones will be um, basically brass that has the powder in it, ready for the projectile to go. So I do them in batches of fifty, but at any one stage, I've got. You know what I mean? It's 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 one tray of fifty that's getting the powder gun done to it. I mean, I don't yep, take it yep. from the you from the powder thrower and then straight into, into the press. No, no, yeah, no. you'd be no. good that at changing guys if you did that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, it's probably more. That was actually the point I was really sort of driving at is because for my for myself, my scale is on the same bench as my press is mounted to. So while I'm banging on the handle with the press seating projectiles, okay. yeah, mine's separate. Yeah, it's it uh, potentially it. in, yep. interferes with the scale, which yep. is which is really the mo- main motivation behind doing it one process at a time. Yep, for me. Yeah, I, I um will often, particularly you know, my more accurate loads, I'm I generally will do batches, so I, I will resize all of them in one night, and that's it. That's all I do, just resize mm. them, and then another night will be priming and another time will be uh, you know I, I, I like to actually if I can keep my brass there and that's you know get it done off site for some of it and then it comes back and it's it hasn't got a primer in it it's nothing live on it and then I'll, I'll prime it all one night and then it just sits there ready to rock and roll and then but I'm, I'm commonly like you so just before a shoot I'll drop powder and drop the projectiles but we're not onto that yet are we no not quite so uh, once we've all primed What's next? I'm going to guess it's powder, but anyone got anything funky going on? Wow. Go to Bronte first. He's got something. He's really <laughs> so got pretty something. funky. Yeah. yeah. Bronte, uh, powder for you? Yeah, powder's my next step, but probably uh, for me, it, my startup's a little bit different because I've got to program my um, auto dispenser thing, and it's not like the normal... I was going to say, that's the, just relax, dude, because that's like three buttons and you hit enter and away you go. Yeah, unfortunately for me, it's not quite that easy. Ah, uh, we see the downside of your press, of your powder thrower. Right, eh? Yeah, it doesn't take long to fix, though. Um, <laughs> so basically, all I have to... So I, I use actually a combination of... I don't know what you'd call that, like the manual powder dispenser that powder works on a volumetric basis. Yep. Um, so I set that up to be 
a grain, two grains underneath my target charge, mm-hmm. um, just to get me near it. I don't really care how close it is, as yep. long as it's not over. So I'll dispense into my powder pan. I'll first zero my scales, and then dispense into my powder pan. Yep. And then I manually trickle up to my correct weight that I'm chasing. Sure. Um, then I press the the save button on my auto dispenser thing. Right. Because you basically have to manually. Tell it what it tell is. Tell it what it yeah. needs to be. Now, now tell us what um, auto dispenser you have because it's not an RCBS or Honda alignment. You, you've got something very funky. Yeah, so basically it's a A&D lab scale. Mm-hmm. Um, that's There's a guy in Canada um, who's... There's F-class, lots of guys in Canada. F-class shooter and he's a pretty pretty cluey guy, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's he's developed a system that works on basically a PLC controller, plugs into the, the scale and... Um, will run a stepper motor to drive a, a trickler onto yep. the scale itself. So basically, you can use a lab scale in very much the same way as you use your RCBS charge master and the like. So for myself, I'm measuring down to 0.02 of a grain, which is yep. under a kernel of uh, 2209. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, and I guess it's a, a cheap but still as accurate, if not more accurate version of a Prometheus, really, isn't it? I think the Prometheus probably is a little bit more accurate. Is it? But those, when you're weighing to a kernel... Those Prometheus are pretty damn good. <laughs> but when you're weighing to a kernel... Very unless pretty damn expensive. Unless you're planning on cutting a kernel you, in half, Greg. you're probably not going to get much of a benefit. And those Prometheus are absolutely amazing. But um, they're also insanely expensive. Yeah. And they're, you can only lease them, you can't buy yeah, them. Yeah, 25-year lease, you can't actually buy them. Yep. Oh, wow. This is something we learnt in the States. So, yeah. Um, so, those, uh, was it A and D? Yeah, A and D. But one A&D. probably thing that I'll do a little bit different is my charge that I use to set my scale. Yep. I actually set that aside and I okay. use that as a double check every now and oh, then okay. yep. to make sure my scale hasn't drifted. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Greg, what do you, uh, what do you go about for this process, mate? Uh, well, I started off with the default. You know, weight scale um, powder measurer thingy, mm-hmm. um, and that took way too long. Although I, I, I think I was fairly happy with the the accuracy of it, but um, I, I went to a electronic, the Hornady one, um, yep. and that served me well within I, I guess point one, point two, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that started to die. Um, so now that is just a glorified uh, powder thrower, and I bought a a, a Gem Pro two hundred and fifty, um, yep. and I'm using that to do the final measure, um, which is pretty accurate. I can get down to sort of kernel type. What's uh, is it point zero two? Yeah. Of so grain? The, the resolution on the Gem Pros is the same as the A and Ds. Yeah. Um, the the major difference which causes the price tag difference between the Gem Pros versus mm. the A&Ds is the, the system that they use within there. The, so mm. with the uh, Gem Pros are a strain gauge-based scale, yep. whereas the um, A&Ds are a magnetic force restoration. So we, mm. we've had this we've had this come up a few times. So, Bronte, can you give us the definition between those two types of measuring? It's essential. Well, they, they both come down to... Measure, with a strain gauge, they're literally bending a piece of metal and how much it deflects gives, they calibrate that back to a weight. 
the magnetic force restoration, I'm a little bit murky on the, the exact physics behind it, but it basically works about deflection within a magnetic field is my understanding. Yeah. Um, the sort of the end user result of that is a strain gauge scale tends to drift, mm. whereas a magnetic force restoration scale is less prone to drifting. Yeah. Now, with a with a strain gauge scale, generally they have an inbuilt um, you know, algorithm such that when they're close to zero, it will zero itself because it will just yep. assume that we're at zero. Yeah. Um, now, the issue with doing that is when you're trickling powders, mm. you're only adding a very small amount of weight each time. Yeah. So the scale won't necessarily pick up the fact that you're adding weight because it thinks you just drift. It's just drifting. Yep. So you can end up inadvertently. Yeah. Increasing yeah. I notice when when I make small increments, like you know, a couple of kernels, it takes quite some time to register. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, but it does register. Um, yeah. Obviously, you know, I'd, I'd love one of the, the versions you've got. It's obviously a step up, but um, I think it's a step up from my electronic. But yeah. again, I've gone from very efficient to something that's a little bit slower. So yeah. it takes me a little bit longer to do my powder throws, but that's basically how I'm doing it at the moment. The Gem Pro 250 was a little bit of a cheaper option at the time too, because I didn't really want to get an RCBS uh, Charge Master because they've got a bit of a pretty price tag in Australia, unfortunately. It's, and and this represented probably a quarter of that cost. Yeah. It's with what, probably a slightly better accuracy yeah, absolutely. tolerance. So. The, thing, the thing is with strain gauge scales, there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. You just need to manage them, basically. Yeah, no, you're so right. So the, the trick with it is to just keep your calibration weight handy and keep putting that on there every now and then and make sure that it hasn't, hasn't drifted from zero and yeah. you'll get a good result. Um, and it's funny you say, you mentioned the price of the the charge masters because when I was looking at upgrading to what I went to it was basically not a huge amount uh, over and yeah, above to the get charge that, master that high end scale on, you've got yeah, yeah, yeah scientific scale yeah yeah that I've got versus yeah. the charge master paying you know retail yeah yeah absolutely Paul what do you do for a powder oh I sound like an absolute hack compared to these guys you just I might mean, get a spoon and throw it in or, just level almost, it at the top I mean, and run it off yeah. over the <laughs> I didn't want to mention that, but yeah, no, I mean, I, um, you know, like Greg, I, I went from the sort of beam scale that lasted literally all of one loading session. Um, no chance. Long loading um, session. No, it was. Yeah, but that loading session lasted for four days. Yeah. <laughs> and four rounds later. <laughs> no, no, the, um, and I went to a Hornady scale, the, 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 the sort of single pad, which was, yep. wasn't the best move, but you know, again, just treading the, testing the waters, um, went to the, uh, Lyman Gen 5, I think it was at the time, mm -hmm. and that was quite good. You know, it seemed to throw the powders consistently, I guess. Um, as I said, I didn't do any kind of testing like what Bronte and, and Greg do. Um, I went from that to the RCBS because everyone's telling me, oh, this is a bells and whistles. And it was at a stage where the US dollar was one for one for the Aussie dollar. Yeah, I was like, yeah, brilliant. Okay, yeah, so, I spent up heaps then. Yeah, so I got it at that stage, <laughs> which all... is good. Um, yep. I didn't. I was a poor uni you. student at that time. <laughs> <laughs> got it, man. Um, you know, I did the, the straw mod, like kind of jazz, yes. what you do. You know, Technical you spend $800 and you got to put a bloody McDonald's straw into it. Yeah, bloody works, though. <laughs> it does. Brilliant. Um, actually, no, Hungry Jack's straw, isn't it? That's right. One yeah. of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah did that. Um, and look, I, I'm i pedantic with it in the sense of I let it throw it, I let it settle, and then I'm usually, as I said, I'm usually priming. So I'm doing something else anyway. Once it's settled, I read it, and if it's, if it's over, I'm... I'm probably in a little different boat. Like I said, I mean, I'm I'm chasing consistently consistency, but I'm not chasing that nth degree. So 
I'm more about I'm hoping the node is sort of medium range, which yeah. gives me that powder buffer. allowance or the power, yeah, the buffer, yeah, the consistency difference, and that's what I'm sort of grabbing at because um, I know, as I said, user error is going to come into play. Sure. Um, and yeah, it won't sort of, it, it, yeah, it, it's look. I've got a time balance you consistently know. enough. And, yeah, and, and that's it, right. Yeah, good so timing. I mean, yep. I leave it there. It, it buffers out or whatever you call it. it. It's it gives it a chance to sort of catch up on itself with a, with a light trickling. Yep. Get a pair of tweezers, bring it back to where it needs to be. Again, drop it, and then yeah, that'll go into the pad. So, nice. One thing I will say though about the system I'm running, it is a hell of a lot faster than you'd expect. Basically, for me, I can load um, 50 cases worth of powder in under 15 minutes. Yep. I can yeah, just see you doing that in a lab coat, though. It just yeah, scares yeah. me. <laughs> With safety glasses. You have to have the safety glasses. The full and, face and a pen protector in the yeah, pocket. That's it. Pocket protector yeah. as well. Yep. yep, that's it. And a bottle of wine. <laughs> so you said so, wine, um, not beer. So obviously you're, you're experiencing close to zero overthrows. To, to um, pull that time off, you must be... Um, yeah, so... Having pretty reasonable success. So there's a couple of things on that, and it's probably something that would apply to other scales as well. But I noticed a lot with the um, the lab scale was I run mine through a UPS, which essentially smoothed out any spikes in the the mains current coming into the place. Mm, interesting. Yep. I also don't have any fluoros. I go back to the old-fashioned incandescent lights because they affect the the scale. Yep. Um, there's also a little switch on the back of the A and D on the part that's provided by the auto trickler guy that you can adjust the the ramp speed and how aggressively it approaches it sure so it's one of those things you have to tweak that and you get it right but one thing that applies to every scale is making sure the damn thing's level yep it's actually makes a surprising amount of difference yep to your reliability and repeatability of your results if the scale is level versus being on the piss mm. mm-hmm Speaking of a bottle of wine, yeah. That's how I check my benches level. <laughs> right. Good. Uh, so with uh, for myself, uh, if I'm loading on the Dillon, uh, it's powder thrower because it's built into the press. Uh, and for what it needs to be, it's, it's accurate enough for what I'm requiring of those rounds. If I'm loading for... Um, if I'm loading for the more accurate, like PRS-type loads, I'll use the Charge Master. And generally, just pay attention to it. Again, it's on a set, like you, Paul. It's on a separate bench, so if I'm if I'm popping uh, projectiles in as well, it doesn't sort of uh, have an issue with it. Uh, I don't believe I have particular fluoros, or um, I don't run a UPS at this stage, but I do hold my tongue right, so hopefully it works well. And then moccasins and a lab coat when you're correct, mate. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, pens in my top pocket. And the other, um, but if I am actually loading for like extreme long range stuff, so if I'm really pushing it out, I will get the charge master to throw the powder, and then I'll throw it onto manual scales and I'll trickle the balance. Um, So I've found that that. That's a guaranteed way, and I, th- I know we had this discussion a while ago. Well, we did a would you rather on this basis, and and that's the way I will do for the extreme long range. So once we're pushing yeah, a mile and beyond, that's where I really sort of focus back on that reloading and the powder, so the throwing. Have you made any modifications to your beam scar? Yep. Yeah, I wrote my name on them. <laughs> I put carbon powder <laughs> on the hinge. Does that count? Yep, there. Yeah, that's the that's the sort of line we're going down because mm. I experimented with the beam scale for far too long, yep. and I ended up going down the path of hooking up a webcam, extending the length of the needle, and having it hooked up to a screen. 
because then I didn't have to bend over to be able to see to remove all the parallax. Get rid of the parallax. <laughs> and it, it, yeah, you yeah. might laugh, no, but it, no, it no, he is laughing. It no, is no, actually, I am laughing, but it did actually make an oh, well a somewhat appreciable difference. It sort of dropped my SDs from about no. eight down to about five yeah. and a bit ish. And I, I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you because I spent a lot of time aligning to my scale to get, you know, or oh, is that on or is that not on? or Because the way my bench was set up. So I first know, built I, a I riser to bring the, bring the yeah. scale up to eye level. Yeah. And then I decided that it was still a very small line. It was still a pain in the pain to read. So mm. that's why I went for the the screen. <laughs> See, the th- that is next level stuff, man. That is just... <laughs> That's incredible. So we've all put our powder in. Is that that's where we're up to to some to some degree? Paul's sort of thrown it with a spoon, and Bronte's uh, paid three people to assess it and whether or not it works, and put it in from there. Dr. Um, Bronte. But but you know, I guess the results speak for himself. So uh, we've all got our powder in. Uh, I'm going to assume that the last process we do is seed our projectile. Is that is that fair from everyone? We get nods Better around. Check with Bronte. Brian Bronte. <laughs> well, yeah, for the other two guys, what do you normally? Yeah, you know, normally that's the, the case. Um, Greg, what do you, what's your process from here? You got powder in the case. Yeah. Um. Obviously, it's seat the the projectile. We assume you've set up to the correct depth. We'll take yeah. that out. It's another discussion, but okay. Yep. You've set your depth on. Yeah. Your my thing. preset um die um. Yeah, I do change the the actual locking ring on my dies too. The um, the reading ones, I think it is, are really good compared Hornady? to the, well, Hornady. Well, yes. Forster or Hornady, Hornady ones. ones yeah, I was going to say they're very much were... more clamping. Yes, the the Hornady and the Forster ones yeah. clamp rather fantastic. Than the, the so I swap the reading ones have this horrible grub screw that was the worst design. Yeah, it's been for a fair while. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. RCBS ones and so, the Lee ones are even worse. They don't even have a locking screw. <laughs> <laughs> so I changed them over. That that's a great help. Um, yep. So yeah, just screw it on basically, and just start Bunching throwing them in. Yeah, yeah. Paul, yep. you you about the same? Yeah, much the same. It's um, yeah, you throw it in. I keep obviously one. I have one projectile that is my template, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you do check it occasionally. Yep, like um, a dummy round. Yeah, that's right. Um, but yeah, much the same. Yep. Yeah, brilliant. Very good. But I'm not bro- wearing the lab coat, look. Dr. Bronte over there. And uh, Bronte, what about yourself, mate? I try to eliminate human error, and I'll actually just check this powder in all my cases in case I've missed one. It's yep. just as a, as a first, like a last sort of pass, and then pretty much the same thing. The only thing I do a little bit different... What a when, surprise. Well, these guys might do it as well, but um, <laughs> when I seat my projectiles, yes, I seat them roughly halfway, then I back the ram off a fraction, turn the case 180 degrees and seat the rest of it. And go again. Or I might do three steps, but generally two steps. I do that with primers. I'll, I'll, with the hand primer, I'll I'll put the primer in, you know, obviously clench tight, and then I'll spin it 180 and I'll hit it again. But Greg, I, I Greg you had it. your time half an hour Sorry. ago, mate. This... All right. <laughs> am, no, I no, da- am I done? <laughs> Can I go on, now? Mate, carry on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I don't do it with uh, projectiles. Anyway, the main reason I do it with projectiles is basically to improve my concentricity Mm. and on the basis that if there is actually any induced run out from my die, Mm -hmm. I'm kind of, although I'm not 100% splitting the difference, I'm essentially reducing Mm. it by, you know, a factor between a third and a half. And and have you seen that? That result, like have you have you measured measured that and been able to see that run out reduce? To be honest, no, um, because I bought a concentricity gauge and my concentricity was less than a thousand, right. so it was kind of 
a bit of a waste. Okay. Um, but what sort of die is she using? Seating dies. Um, I'm using a blend of the the Forster, I think the the Bentress micrometer seating dies that have the the sleeve that goes up with the case. Yeah, yeah. Um, as well as the the Widen or Widen dies. I'm not sure of the correct pronunciation. Yeah. Um, and of those two, uh, I think I like the system in the the Widen dies a little bit better because of how he's designed the um, internals of it. Yep. Um, but as far as end results go. Both of those are absolutely top notch. Yeah, yeah, right. Cool. I would, yeah, happily recommend both of those systems to anyone. That they're, they're just ex- exceptional. Yep. Cool. Yeah, brilliant. And uh, and so you know, on the um, Dylan, it just goes through automatically. Same thing. Uh, just seat that one by itself. Uh, but normally, look, no, no different to what Craig or yeah. Paul you guys do in terms of just put it in there and, and away we go. Make sure it's all set to distance uh, to to length and uh, and move on from there. Does anyone do anything after that? Put it in the case. Like the holder, round holder. Right. Make sure you're writing that one down. That's, yep. that's yep. cutting edge stuff. <laughs> Paul, is that in your new updated process, mate? You chuck it in the empty I'm glad case? Bronte sort of gave me that one because I'll, I'll start using <laughs> yeah. it. Um, you're sort of like, yeah. oh, how do I get all these to the range? <laughs> no, it's, um, it's actually funny. Like, I guess just touching on the projectile seating, um, I've played around with a few different things. And like I said, mm. I used to use Lee initially and then i've gone to sort of reading dies sure yep. um i now use the competition i think they are next, next sizing yeah, dies whatever yep. yep um what i've noticed is i've actually taken the stem out of the um the seating die mm-hmm. and i've used some uh, uh like a bore paste and i put the projectile yep. that i use because i tend to use one projectile for the dies um i'll put that projectile in a, in a drill put some bore paste on it actually almost ream out the stem yeah, right. the seating stem okay um cool. and yeah, it just stops the marking yeah. on the ogive, whatever you call it. It's, 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 yeah. I guess it's just my little thing of um, mm. just taking, you know, not so much the the error out of it, but I did notice like the reading dies tended to mark them more than say the lee dies, which was actually quite funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, look, I've, I've my experience is the same. We we're talking about it before that I actually seat my two sixty with six five Creedmoor dies because uh, if I use my two sixty dies, I get a ring around the projectile. Yep. Whereas if I use my 6.5 Creedmoor dies, I don't get that ring. So, yeah, and that's the whole thing. Yep. If, if I put that projectile in the drill and um, put the, the paste on there, thanks, Goldie, and I'll, I'll ask you ring that ring yep. that out. Take and that out. That takes, I guess it takes the edge off the, yep. the loading stem. And, um, yeah, happy days. Mm. I do find it interesting that you use a Creedmoor die for the um, 260, being that they have a different shoulder angle. For seating. Yeah, yeah, it's still for seating. I mean, it depends. I guess it depends what type of dies you're using. But um, for the dies that I'm using with the the sleeves that actually move up, they're designed to index off of the shoulder. You actually want that sleeve to move up with the case. So you want that sleeve to to marry up to the shoulder because that helps with uh, ensuring that concentricity and that linear action on the seating of the projectile. Yeah, certainly. But the the 6.5 dies, I've got a Type S, so they don't have that sleeve. Ah, Uh, So, But funny enough, my 260 dies are comp dies. And I get that ring around. So I do actually now have the VLD cedar for them, but I haven't put it in yet because the 6.5 dies seems to be working. Seems to work, yeah. <laughs> so, well, yeah. you know, if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. No, that's right. But I may I may actually try Paul's um, method and, and do that ball paste. Mm. I bought the um, Reading VLD cedar. Yes. And all the stem, whatever it is. And yep. um, I found that the spring didn't engage properly on the top of the micrometer on the, on the very top of it. Okay. 
it just didn't engage it properly. I can't remember if it was on the 6.5 or on the 300 wind mag, but it basically meant that I had no tension on mm, okay. yeah, on the right. seat, on the um, stem itself. Um, again, that might be because I'm an absolute hack at reloading. I don't know, but <laughs> it was just one of those things. And I've reverted back to that original stem. And then, yeah, like I said, that's when the ball paste idea came in. So, yeah. It's a good idea. Brilliant. Yeah. All right. Well, guys, I think uh, I think we've covered our processes through there. Anything? No, I'm not going to ask. I think we've probably covered enough uh, through there. I'm sure that those listening will have different ways they do it. And I think what we've probably put out tonight is the fact that there are multiple ways to achieve the same goal. Um, there may be things you've heard from uh, these guys' processes that you may think about sort of implementing or changing around in yours and there's probably things that you guys you know who are listening do that we could certainly take from uh with our processes as well so um it's a continual uh learning development in reloading you certainly don't learn it all in one hit and it gradually you get refined i think the thing that we are conscious of is that a lot of people do stuff because they've always done it that way and i think the guys in the room perhaps um, subscribe to the view that you try and, you know, if you're doing something but you're doing it and you're not sure why you're doing it, review why you're doing it and then and then work on, you know, is this actually making a difference? And, you know, we probably had a couple of those moments tonight going, hey, I might, I might actually test that out, check that out. And, and if you've got that attitude of continuing to do that, you will work out where's my time best spent and what is not actually having a result on it. But we better we better leave this off with a would you rather. Uh, and I've got a question for you guys tonight. And uh, I'm interested to hear your result. And, of course, we'll throw this up on Facebook uh, once this episode comes out and do the same thing. This one is about load development. And we just, I guess, slightly aligned to what we've been talking about tonight. And there's often two groups of thought or two ways people go about it. You'll find guys who will chase muzzle velocity. They want the fastest damn speed they can get out of their, their round. Um, so their projectile is hurtling down range. So we're going to call that muzzle velocity tonight. We're chasing muzzle velocity. And sometimes that's done at the compromise of group size. So they may hit a node, but at slightly lower velocity, like a couple hundred feet per second lower than they're intending, but the groups are sensational. And then they sort of hit another node, but it's not as tight up the higher end. So what I'm asking you guys, are you going to be sacrificing muzzle velocity? Are you going to chase muzzle velocity, or are you going to chase absolute group size? What would you rather, Greg? Group size. Yeah, I'll, I'll grab a node any day of the week, thanks. Yep. Despite a previous podcast where you've gone, oh, I've found a good group, but I'm looking for more velocity. Well, that's because my group size was right down the very, very bottom of my oh, range. Okay. And I got one. I yeah. got one higher up in the end. It, I, yeah. There is. I, <laughs> <laughs> no, you've only got one choice. No? And you've oh, got, God damn it. You've gone with group size. Well done. All right, Bronte. Group size? Yep. With quite a large caveat. <laughs> all right, moving on. Um, all right, what is it? Come on, tell us. Oh, I don't care necessarily about my if I'm shooting a, a you know point two five group that's fantastic yeah but I'll happily take a point five group if my extreme spread and standard deviation is much lower right so I'm I'm looking for a, you know, and generally speaking that happens around your nodes you get yep. that flat spot um, I'm not chasing the you know I don't want the fastest gun in in South Australia 
but I want one with a, a low extreme spread and a low stevi- standard deviation, which tends to occur on those velocity nodes, which are generally a bit slower than flat out. So, so you're generally saying group size is yep. what your driving factor is uh, with some other factors in that aren't in the questions. That Correct. Are Good. Hence Excellent. the big caveat. Good. Paul. Yeah, wow. Um, <laughs> why do I always go after Bronte? He sounds so intelligent. Um, so after Bronte's done my reloading, yep. um, I'm telling him to go for the node. Going for the node. For going for the group size, what you're saying? Yeah, going for the group size. Yeah. Brilliant. And I'm, right. I'm, I'm from the other extreme, like I said. I mean, I've... I've I've always done it safely and I've done it, you know, within the what the books specify and I've always ended up like I think what Greg said before, I've always ended up with a lower node. Yep. Not realising that um you can safely try and to achieve that next node. Mm-hmm. Um and in the style of shooting that we do now, that next node is really the pinnacle where you need to be. Um, especially to, to barrier to, to fight that barrier wind, etc. Yep. Um so yeah, you've got to do a bit of exploring, you've got to do it safely obviously and there's there's ways of doing that and yep. you know, just I guess yeah. Just do it. Just make sure you do do it safely. You're aware of pressure signs, etc., and that you know you're not. Hmm. I'm going to have to say muzzle velocity just because it's different to you guys, but also because I've been using my two twenty two to fifty as the example for majority of stuff tonight. And given the purpose of that gun, and that's perhaps for me where it comes back to. So the purpose of that gun is a spotlighting gun out to three, maybe four hundred meters tops, and the flatter that trajectory I can make, as long as they're hitting the fox. I'm pretty happy. He well, gets to justify his answer. Yeah. I tried What's to. Hey, no, we, we, <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, I put you guys on mute. Give us a second. But if um, you're using the Dylan, I mean, your yeah. node's all over the shop anyway. That's exactly right. Well, that's chance. why he loads for the node. <laughs> like, <laughs> somewhere in that powder range of <laughs> one to five grains. Yeah, well, it's, it's somewhere between, like, the first and the second node. Yeah, it's within that node. And the so, funny thing is, the Dylan has dust on it, and Rob's numbers on speed dial. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, mate. Absolutely. And um, it just means I need to go spotlighting more. That's all it means. I just need to get that thermal you talked about at the beginning of the show there, Greg. I think all of us do, to be honest. That thing, those videos are absolutely <laughs> exceptional. So, um, Which is a good point, actually. If you haven't seen Greg's YouTube channel, uh, Greg, what's it called? Terminal um, Performance. What did I call it? Termi- uh, yeah, Terminal <laughs> Performance. I'm yeah, going to have a look to tell me because I, I knew what it was, but I thought I'd, no, I'd let you say it. and then and, you're- and, Yeah, and that's the thing. Uh, probably in recent weeks, I've had a lot of farmers ring me. Well, not a lot, three. Um, about lambs and getting uh, them taken by foxes. So I've, I've been busy and uh, yep. I've knocked quite a few over. So there's a few videos up there. Yeah, so bit. we'll make sure we throw that link up, Terminal Performance on YouTube and check them out, thermal videos of uh, Greg out there banging away. Um, we'll certainly get that would you rather question because we're interested to hear you guys and you guys get more of a chance to justify it than Bronte does and particularly Greg as well. And you can put in your Facebook responses why you've chosen the answer you've chosen. Uh, but it'd be interesting to uh, to hear. Cool. Well, gentlemen, thank you all for coming in this evening and uh, spending time chatting away to us about reloading. And uh, what's uh, you got a chance out for a shoot the next week or so? I know you boys are shooting this weekend. Going to see you on Sunday and yep. probably load development in the morning as per usual. Yep. And then we'll go from there. First, shoot your first three stages at 100 metres. Yep, beautiful. <laughs> Excellent. Correct. Yeah, Greg, are you getting yeah, out this weekend? foxes as usual. Um, hopefully get a couple. Nicely done. Brilliant. All right, guys. Well, thanks for uh, listening and uh, we'll be back in a few weeks and no doubt with another uh, another podcast about something else irrelevant. We'll catch you then. 
Thanks for listening to the Precision Shooting Podcast. To continue the discussion, check out our Facebook page. And for more information, head to our website, www.precisionshootingpodcast.com.au. This episode was brought to you by Projectile Warehouse. Find your perfect projectile.